Hey friends, I'm Christine Chappell, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, we're bringing you a recent broadcast of Hope and Help Live, a periodic segment of the show that features unscripted live recorded interviews previously streamed on Facebook. Today's conversation features authors Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Shoemaker. During the live chat, we talk about their book, Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women. For more help on the topics we discuss today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Elise Fitzpatrick is a nationally sought-after speaker and author. She holds a certificate in biblical counseling and has an MA in biblical counseling from Trinity Theological Seminary. She has authored 23 books and lives in California with her husband, Phil. Eric Shoemaker is a pastor, songwriter, and author. He earned an MDiv in biblical and theological studies from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Eric and his wife, Jenny, have five children and live in Iowa. All right, well, we have a good amount of people here. We're going to go ahead and get started with our conversation Why we're here today. Again, in case you're just joining us, we're here with Eric Shoemaker and Elise Fitzpatrick to talk about their brand new book, Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women. So why don't we go ahead and dive right in? Now, Elise, I showed you before we joined this conversation that I am a huge Elise fan these are some of the books that I have enjoyed over the years. While I have not read all of them, I really felt like this particular book, you really disclose a little bit more personal story, a little personal background of things. I, I learned. I felt like I learned more about you than I did in previous books. And so I wondered if you might share a little bit about your story, your upbringing, and how that, your life circumstances, I guess you could say, kind of shaped and mold your earlier views of women and biblical womanhood? I think that in this book, I was probably a little more transparent, tried to be more transparent about myself as a woman. I think I've talked a lot about in my other books about myself as a Christian, my journey into Christianity, but I think I talked more about my journey as a woman and the kinds of things that drove me as a young person and even after I became a Christian. So, for instance, I was not raised in a Christian home. My mom was a lapsed Catholic. My father was a non-practicing Jew. They divorced about the time I was three or four. So then I spent a significant amount of time. Uh, my mother remarried for a short period of time, but I spent most of my childhood kind of thinking, if I only had a man in my life, a dad, and you remember this was in like the 1950s when divorce was not nearly as common as it is now. If I had a dad like my neighbor down the street, then I would be a better person. It would say something about me personally. And then uh, about the time I was 13, I asked my mom, why are we here? Um, I'm asking metaphysical questions when I'm 13. And she didn't really have an answer that satisfied me. Uh, so I thought, well, okay, I live in Southern California. The point is to eat, drink, and be merry. And I did. So I lived this utterly debauched life all of the time, all of the time looking for a guy, a man, who would somehow give me value, that would something somehow say something about me 
that I was a somehow a better person because I had the approval of a guy. Okay. So then by the time that I was uh, right before my 21st birthday, I had gotten pregnant, I had gotten married, I had gotten divorced, all the time on that journey, trying to find a guy who would somehow save me. And then the Lord came into my life <laughs> and uh, radically saved me. I was not looking for God. I started off being reformed in my soteriology without even knowing what any of those words would mean because I knew I wasn't looking for God and he saved me. He crashed into my life and saved me. But that didn't change that underlying sort of thought. If I had some sort of a respectable man who approved of me, then somehow I would be a respectable human being. And that has driven me for decades. And, you know, Phil and I have been married for over 45 years. And part of the thing that was very interesting to me was that Phil came from a very respectable family. So, you know, I was looking for it. And it's really just become, honestly, since I've been more grounded in the gospel, more grounded in my relationship with Jesus Christ, even though I was already a biblical counselor, even though I already was a believer and knew the word, as I became more and more grounded in my justification and in what Jesus Christ had done for me, then I began to see the relationships that I have had with men in my life for what they were, that a lot of times I was just trying to use guys to mean something about me as a human. Thank you for sharing some, for sharing all that. I think that's just, that really hits home, I, I would say, for me personally, but I'm sure with a lot of women as well. Now, Eric, I also really appreciated your transparency in the book. How have your views of shepherding women in the local church taken shape over the past 10 years or so? That's a great question. One of the ways it's taken shape is just realizing I haven't done a good job of it. Shepherding women, uh, both individually and corporately, I wouldn't say was a high priority uh, when I got out of seminary and started pastoring my first church. I think my concerns were preaching the word and preaching it well, uh, which obviously is an important concern and should be central, I think, to every pastor because the declaration of the word is uh, one of our primary means of shepherding the whole flock. But in terms of thinking even about how women hear my sermons, uh, that wasn't a question that I was asking. I wasn't asking women for input in how they understand passages, how they hear things that we say. Uh, I wasn't thinking about how to train women to use their gifts for ministry in the local church. And so while I might think about training up elders, which is obviously an important thing in the church to entrust uh, faithful men with the gospel, I wasn't thinking about how to entrust uh, women with the gospel particularly. And I, and I kind of brushed that aside as women's work uh, because Paul says in Titus 2, the older women are to teach the young, you know, train the younger women how to live out the faith, never realizing that Paul did not say only the older women should train the younger women in how to live out the faith. This is a pastoral concern uh, that we should be thinking about. And, and even thinking about women who might have gifts in things like teaching, uh, teaching others the word of God. I wasn't doing, you know, when I started teaching people how to interpret the Bible and think about how to effectively communicate it to others and train them in teaching, I was primarily thinking about men 
and how they could speak to the whole congregation or to other men. And so I've had a number of women in the churches that I've pastored who have graciously, you know, been willing to speak to me uh, on those things and raise questions about why we focus on what we do and why we don't do these things and who've been very patient and gracious with me. And, you know, and, and then I think there were some theological ideas that some I may not even have held, but they sort of seep in sort of by osmosis from the circles that you run in and you don't really realize they're affecting you. And so I think in some bad Christian theology, uh, there's the idea that women are more deceivable uh, than men are, that women are by nature out to try to uh, usurp authority and overcome men. Even if you don't believe that, I think when it's present and often restated, you begin to grow suspicious of women who have strong opinions or strong voices or who come and question you or ask questions. And so there's this, there's this caution that builds up. I think all those areas, I've just had my eyes opened in the last several years and have begun to try to drive back into the scripture to see uh, what it actually says. Well, I really appreciated how much you and Elise took us straight to the word in this book. I think that it was such an encouragement for me. I felt like you guys were holding my hand through these biblical narratives and the different women that you guys point out that the Lord has used and shaped redemptive history through. And so, Elise, I wonder if I could ask you, you know, we're IBCD, we're Biblical Counseling Organization, and I know that there are people who are watching who are in the business of counseling women, but even if you're not an official counselor, you're just a friend, you're a woman, and you have a friend who's hurting, you know, this would apply to you too. I think that there are women who have really struggled to lay hold of their identity, their womanhood in Christ because of past abuses. And so they're, they're scarred, there's maybe trauma related, there's been mistreatment, maybe even to the point like what Eric was saying, where there was um, a misuse of biblical truth, or some kind of twisting of God's word in a way that was not meant to be. And so maybe they've lived with shame, regret, and a heavy sense of worthlessness. I wonder when you counsel women with that type of pain in their past, is there a particular biblical narrative or two that you take women who feel unworthy just in their essence as a woman, where do you take them into the scriptures to show them how, how God sees them, how Jesus approaches them? Thank you so much for that question. That's a really great, great question. I want to sort of start off by saying there's a difference between shame and guilt. And we feel guilt over things that we do. And we as Christians know what to do about that. We ask the Lord for forgiveness. And then we strive to believe that what he says is true, that he actually forgives us. And then there's shame. And shame is not about what I do. Shame is about who I am. And I think a lot of women feel shame about who they are. I think part of that comes out of what Eric was talking about, which is this general underlying teaching in the church that all of the sin in the world is really because of a woman. You know, it's all Eve's fault, as Adam said. You know, it's the woman you gave me. And that as a woman, I always have to be thinking that my motives, my thoughts are suspect because the way that Genesis 3.16 has been, I believe, misinterpreted to mean that a woman is always trying to usurp authority. I 
don't believe that that's true of all women, certainly not of all Christian women. And then also this sort of thought that women are easily deceived. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in my Christian life just over and over again. So there's this sort of sense of shame that we have as women, like somehow the guys are better. Then if you would add on to that, abuse or being misused or denigrated by people uh, even especially of in authority in our lives that just compounds that sense of shame i love the story of a woman that the eastern orthodox church has uh, named fotine whether or not that's what her real name was i whatever <laughs> but we know her as the samaritan woman and how many times have you heard her story the Samaritan woman was this immoral, bad woman. She had been divorced, and now she's shacking up with some guy. Without actually stopping and stepping back and looking at the culture in which she lived, it, she wasn't able to initiate divorce. Every divorce she had been through had been initiated against her. And the fact that she was at this point living with a man, I mean, she didn't, she couldn't get welfare or go get a job someplace. She needed the shelter of a man to provide for her and care for her. Now, this is a woman whose reputation, I mean, all of the women in Samaria, in, in Sychar, knew that whatever it was about her, it was bad enough that all the guys, all her husbands divorced her. And you know that at least in, uh, in the Jewish case law, a, a man could just divorce a woman if he found something, and we don't even know what this means, he found something indecent in her, whatever that meant. So you've got this woman, Fatine, and Jesus, get this. This is so encouraging to women. You know, I'm divorced. So many women in the church feel like they've been divorced, they've lived with men, they've done all these different things, their reputation is trashed. Fotine, <laughs> the, the patron saint of divorced women, okay? She has a conversation with Jesus, and Jesus doesn't pull any punches with her, but neither does he shame her. He speaks right to her heart, and it was to her that he revealed himself as the Messiah that was the first Gentile who had ever heard him say that he was the Messiah. I mean, think about that. Jesus could have said he was the Messiah to any of a number, even the guys there, but he didn't. And then, of course, the, the disciples come back from getting lunch, and they're shocked that he's talking to a woman, and particularly this one. And then he commissions her. He tells her, I'm your Messiah. I'm the one you're looking for. Go tell everybody. And he commissions her to go back to her town. Think of the bravery that it took for her to go back to her town, to everyone who knew her, and to say, come and see this man. And they probably thought, yeah, yeah, we, we know you've seen a lot of men. No, I mean, come and see this man. He's Messiah. And so they listened to her because she preached the gospel in such a way that they responded. And actually, the Eastern Orthodox Church says, uh, the tradition is that she left, eventually left Sychar and uh, went to North Africa with two sons of hers, 
where she was martyred under a Roman emperor. So here's the deal. You can be a woman who has been completely used and thrown away by any number of men. Jesus Christ will still come to you. You are still important to him and he will reveal himself to you because he loves that kind of person. I mean, look at the people around him. He loves that kind of person. I just love that story. I'm trying, I'm feverishly trying to look where, but she says, and I can't find it, even though I'm literally looking at John right now, but she says something to the effect of, you know, come and yeah. uh, see the see man, man who told me every, everything I've ever yeah. done. Yeah. I just love that declaration from her. Like she was fully seen, yes. fully known, yes. fully in love because he yes. loved her. It was just, yeah. oh, I just love it. Thank it's you. It's so good. Listen, and, and that's so good because she had been seen before. Yeah. All right. And they probably even knew her. They didn't know her heart, but the people in the town, they had seen and known her, but they hadn't loved her. And that's the thing about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus sees and knows us, but he loves us as well. And that's the shocking thing there. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a wonderful place to just sit and park with women who can really identify with her story. Eric, I'm really thankful that you and Elise spotlight 42 separate occasions where women premiered in the way of faith. So that's your guys' language. So I wonder if you could explain what you mean by premier in the way of faith and offer some of your favorite examples or maybe even the ones that surprised you the most when you discovered them. When I first made up the list, I didn't really know what to do with it other than to say, wow, this is just interesting that these women are not just the first women, but the first people in the Bible to do certain things or the, the impetus for things to be done. And so I think when I wrote the Gospel Coalition article, I threw some applications on there, um, you know, to the effect that God sees women, he thinks their stories are important, uh, those sorts of things. I didn't really know, uh, I hadn't really processed it yet to know what to make of it. And I think one of the things that I've begun to see, even after writing the book, it's become clearer to me how necessary. So I think we say that women are integral, and we do say they're necessary in the book. But women don't just play an integral role, they play a necessary role in, in redemptive history. Uh, the plan of salvation as God planned it and executed it, um, you know, he works through human means. And there are places where that plan would not have moved forward had it not been for these women. And so when he says in Genesis 2, after he's created the man, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper for him. That word for helper isn't like, you know, grandma's little helper who follows around in the kitchen. And while she's a helper, the four-year-old girl actually, you know, it takes twice as long to make the cookies. Um, you know, or daddy's little helper, you know, doing yard work or whatever. It, that helper is a, is, a, is a necessary ally in the work. Like it's, it's absolutely bad for that helper not to be there. This help is an absolute necessity. And so the woman is given as a necessary ally in this work of the creation mandate, in this work of exercising dominion over the world. And then we get to, you know, Genesis 3, and the Lord says to the serpent uh, this really interesting thing. He says, um, I'll put en enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, 
and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what interests me about that is the Lord describes the coming redeemer, the conquering king, as her offspring. And he could have just said, I'm going to send a child. I'm going to send a human child, but he actually describes her as the seed of the woman. And she plays this role in bringing him into the world that is so important, the, the serpent is going to hate her, and there's going to be particular war between them. And what you see, and what I've begun to see, even since, I, since the book was published, as you work through the storyline of the Bible, there are a number of places where, you know, the whole Old Testament is one story looking for that promised son who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent and redeem us from this whole mess. As the story is given to the Israelites, they, they know these promises are being traced along certain lines, you know, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Judah. And the story is written in such a way that it's telling us how this line of the Messiah, this ancestry is coming about. And there's a number of places where one of these ancestors, you know, the line of the, of the, the promised one is threatened with extinction. And you have some brave woman of faith who steps forward in a courageous way, whether pleading with the Lord or acting in some way that preserves the line and sees that the Messiah comes. And so she really is necessary in this story that's being told. And that just continues straight through the New Testament. It doesn't end with the arrival of Christ. Uh, we see women as necessary partners in gospel work, the Great Commission, um, as Paul is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He is, he's partnering with these women that he calls partners in the gospel. He's praising and commending them as servants. I think my favorite was Eve and discovering that her words in Genesis chapter four, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So that statement, um, I've gotten a man, uh, you know, a male child's been born and it's been done with God's help is really an expression of faith. I believe God has helped us and he is delivering on his promise. Those are the first recorded words of faith in the Bible. And what gets in really interesting in Genesis 4 is the chapter ends with her expressing faith again when Seth is born because Cain in between has killed Abel. And then, so she expresses faith. She's the first one to use the, the name Yahweh of the Lord, first one to express faith. And that whole chapter is bookended by her confessing faith. And then it mentions that her son, Seth, descending from him, become the first people to call upon the name of the Lord, probably meaning some kind of organized worship of Yahweh. In between that is Cain and how his descendants spiral into unbelief and act like the serpent. And so what Moses is doing there is he's showing us the seed of the woman, which is expressed in saving faith versus the seed of the serpent, which is found in Cain and his unbelieving offspring. From the beginning, the categories of the people of God versus uh, the people of Satan, the, the, the prince of this world, are defined by people who come from the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, which is just really fascinating to me um, that we're tracing our ancestry back as people of faith, not to Adam, but to Eve. You know, we've fallen in him, but in our faith, we share our heritage with her.
Elise, building off of Eric's response, what does this list tell us about the importance of women in redemptive history? I think that we've, I've often thought of redemptive history as a history of men. You know, well, okay, so Eve blew it, so there's her history. But then it's the history of man, Abraham, well, you know, Noah, and then Abraham, and then his, and then the tribes, and then the kings, and the, you know, the mess and the judges, and then, you know, the kings and the prophets, and it's all of these men who were part of redemption's history, and they certainly were. I'm not saying that they weren't. The thing that I've seen, and I really appreciate what Eric said, that, I mean, since I have written the book, since the book has even been out, and I'm continuing to study, it's getting clearer and clearer to me. It's just, it's an amazing thing how much I am seeing now things I had never seen before, that how integral women were, really, from the very beginning, all the way to the book of Revelation. And so, you know, as Eric was talking about women who partnered with Paul, the first baptized convert in Europe is a single businesswoman. I mean, we're, assu we're, we're assuming Lydia is single because we don't hear anything about her. She's probably widowed. She may have been divorced, but she's probably widowed. We don't know. We do know that she was wealthy. Paul has a vision, and he's trying to discern the will of the Lord about where he should go preach. And he has a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. Come and help us. A man asking that. How does God answer that? He answers it with Lydia and a group of women in Philippi praying by a river. So here's a man saying, come and help us. And then here is that necessary ally, Lydia who is the first baptized convert in Europe, and she hosts the church at her house, which is more than she just served tea and cookies or something. She was uh, legally responsible to Rome for everything that happened in her house. She was a leader in the house. She also undoubtedly had a home in Thyatira, and it's assumed that the church that was in Thyatira was at her other house, and Paul's ministry from Philippi was uh, financed primarily by her. So like in the very beginning, God says, you need a helper. And through the woman, your helper, I'm going to send the one, the rescuer. And then we fast forward several thousand years to this woman. And there she is being the helper. And what's our call as women? What, what's our calling now? Well, you know, in the past, perhaps in the old covenant, women thought a lot about, well, my call is that I get married and have children and hopefully give birth to the promised one. But that's not the call now. The call now is in the new covenant to preach the gospel. It's the great commission. And that's not to say that women who want to be married or who are married, you know, I'm, I'm not making any comment about that. I'm just saying that's not our primary call anymore. Our primary call is to be in relationship with Jesus Christ and then to take that message like Fotine did, like Lydia did, like Eve did, and say, there is a God and he's here. You need to know him.
you know, at the same time that your guys' book was just about ready to come out at the end of last year, well, that's when it was starting, and then it came out a few months ago, I actually was finishing up a biography of Charles Spurgeon, and I learned of a wonderful woman called Mrs. Bartlett. I want to read you a little bit about because I think that she fits in perfectly with this conversation. So I learned about Lavinia Bartlett, uh, who in 1873 was commissioned to take over a Sunday school class for older women. And what started as a class, this was in Charles Spurgeon's church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, thousands and thousands and thousands of members. What started as a class of three women soared to over 700 in regular attendance in just a matter of seven years. And apparently, Mrs. Bartlett was not, as Elise would say, teaching just fluff, but rather she evangelized her female students in the way of salvation. I read that by the end of her life, it was estimated 900 to 1,000 members of her class came to know the Lord. And here is how Charles Spurgeon, he, who commissioned her for this, here's how he described her. She aimed at soul, this is a quote, she aimed at soul winning every time she met the class. And then again, he says, Mrs. Bartlett was a woman of intense force of character. She believed with all her heart and therefore acted with decision and power. She flamed in determined earnestness at times when only fire could clear a path. And then there was no withstanding her as her class very well knew. Those are words straight from Charles Spurgeon. And then lastly, I'll just say one more quote from him. He says, Mrs. Bartlett was a choice gift from God to the church at the tabernacle, and the influence of her life was far-reaching, stimulating many others besides those who, by her means, were actually led to the Savior. So indeed, this book right here tells about the ministry. It's called Mrs. Bartlett and Her Class at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Super interesting read, but I think especially for this conversation to see how even Charles Spurgeon recognized the importance of equipping a gifted woman who she was clearly gifted at a young age it was recognized that she had an evangelism gift in a teaching gift to be able to minister to other women in the church that was a priority for him biography says that mrs bartlett's sunday school class size was consistently the largest out of all the sunday classes men and women. So what can we glean as we observe the co-laboring between a gifted pastor and a gifted woman? Spurgeon was amazing in, in so many ways. I've heard it said before, he said, you could start a thousand churches encircling the tabernacle, go for it. Like as long as Christ is being preached, he wasn't threatened by that competition. And he wasn't threatened by a successful, spiritually speaking, a successful woman teaching the Bible in his own church, you know, gathering 700 people, he wasn't scared that she was going to usurp him or steal from his popularity or run off and start her own church. You know, I think it was Spurgeon who said, I don't remember if it was on the passage about the resurrection or the Samaritan woman, but he, he's the one that said, we cannot tell the women to go home. He, you know, he's, he's saying these gifts are uh, I forget which sermon that was, but he's he's saying, look, they have important work to do and we can't sideline them. We can't put them on the bench. They are essential to the work that we have to do. I think as pastors, well, we're all prone to pride. I know that as a pastor. Part of our task is to lead a church, to be influencers, pointing them in the directions the sheep should go. And when you equip somebody else to do ministry, there's always the risk that their influence could eclipse yours. 
if we see the ministry as something to be done in our own power, then we will fence off any influence that might compete with ours, so to speak. If we're more like Paul, who says, even if it's out of bad motivations, I rejoice that Christ is preached. You know, people are preaching Christ so that he would suffer. And he says, that's okay. Christ is being preached. Even if the motivation's wrong, I want Christ to be preached. And so I think Spurgeon is modeling trust in the God who is absolutely sovereign more than his own ability to manage things. And he's saying, look, God's given me a good gift in this sister, and she is going to be able to speak to these women perhaps in ways that I can't. And so I'm going to celebrate that and rejoice in that. You know, in my own church, uh, one of my members is one of the co-hosts and co-founders of Risen Motherhood podcast and the book. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that one of their podcast episodes will reach and be listened to by more women than the number of people who have probably heard all of my sermons combined. I celebrate that. I, I just love that, that um, she's preaching the gospel to these moms. You know, preaching just means herald. It just means to proclaim as good news. And if that threatened us as our pastoral staff, that, uh, that Emily might have more influence than us, we would just do incredible damage in hindering the work of the gospel to these sisters who are gifted in this way. It wouldn't bring glory to Christ. I think what we learn is, again, this is an essential partnership. And that doesn't mean there's not differences between us or in God's design, but it, it, it can't be pushed away. Yeah, I think it was just so exciting to learn of her story. And, you know, there were even remarks in this biography of Mrs. Bartlett about how she, as a woman, I mean, she also knew where she needed to serve. She wasn't trying to serve. She wanted to be, this is my calling. I'm not trying to make it more than God wants or less. I'm trying to be right here, serve the lo local yeah. church under the authority of my pastors and my elders. And so she knew that she had a special calling, but at the same time, she wanted that special calling to complement the work that was going on yeah. at the local church level. And so I think just, the, just being able to know their stories has been such yeah. an encouragement to me personally. What you just said there is so important about she knew where she was going to serve. She wasn't competing for a position. Are there women who reach for things they ought not have? Absolutely. Are there men who reach for things they ought not have? Absolutely. We can point to examples of pastors who have been abusive in their use of their authority, uh, in their treatment of people. Uh, that doesn't mean we throw out all the men <laughs> or all the pastors. And we can point to to examples of women who have been unfaithful and damaging to the church in the same ways. Uh, but we don't throw out all the women. We deal with sin and we equip and send saints. Elise, I would love to have you chat about a particular part that you had described in the book. You know, Mother's Day is rolling around. I have three children, um, but one son. His name is Cash, and he's six years old. And there was a particular part in the book that really tugged on my heartstrings because, boy, do I love that little guy. Um, he's, you know, mom-son connection, I guess you could say. But uh, there was a point in the book where you took us to the foot of the cross to witness the compassion of Christ toward women, even in the midst of his agony, barely able to take a breath, and he's still thinking of other people. It's astonishing. You call to mind the moment when he concerns, concerns himself over his mother's well-being, and you describe that as, quote, perhaps the most touching scene in all the life of Christ. 
take us to that scene. You describe it so well in the book, and I wonder if you would do that for us here. You know, when I think about Mary, the Lord said that she was full of grace before she said, okay. So this is a woman that God had put his hand upon and who knew from the very beginning that her life was going to be marked with great honor, yes, but also immense suffering. You remember when she's at the temple and she's told, you know, this, this son of yours is destined for the rise and fall of many and a sword will pierce your own soul. So here's a woman who uh, faces the, the destruction of her reputation as a godly woman, but she follows the Lord, her son, the Lord. She goes through a time when she's not sure what he's even doing. You know, it's like she's going to do an intervention with him because <laughs> she thinks he's lost it. She follows with him. She's with a group of women that go with him. And then there she is at the foot of the cross. I mean, this is the destiny that she had to have known from the very beginning that a sore would pierce her own heart. And yet there's her son in his hour of, we use a word excruciating, and that word excruciating really comes from that C-R-U-X that's in that word, comes from crucified, the crucifix, to be crucified. So he's in excruciating pain, not only because of what's happening to him physically, but also what's happening to him spiritually. And yet he had so much love for her that it occurred to him in his humanity, it occurred to him that she was undoubtedly a widow by this point, that he needed to take care of her so that she didn't end up just destitute. So she gave her into his dearest friend's hands. Think about that. The immense love and compassion that the Lord Jesus has for all people, but I think particularly for women, I mean, he's on the way to the cross and he's saying, don't weep, don't weep for me. He has immense compassion for what it means to be a woman, to be in a position of weakness, to not be able to take care of yourself. And when he's suffering the greatest pain that has ever been suffered at any time by any human being, when the father is going to pour his wrath out on him, he takes care of his mom. That's the heart of our Savior. And that's why I can say to women, don't worry about whether or not he loves you, because this is the kind of man he is. And all of these women around him all of the time, he never took advantage of any of them once. And they were safe with him. They were comfortable with him. They didn't have to worry about, does he have some ulterior motive? And there he is with his mom, dying breath. John, take care of her. Mom, let John take care of you. I mean, it's, it's shocking. We are just about almost out of time. You will know if you are a podcast listener that I invite every guest of the show to answer a question at the end of the interview. And so I'm going to ask Eric 
and then I'm going to ask Elise and then we will wrap up here today. So Eric, I'm going to ask you now a question and would ask that you would speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is currently a man serving in a church leadership capacity. Perhaps he's been really encouraged by this conversation and wants to become more intentional about the way he considers the perspectives and concerns of women in his congregation. What would you say to this listener to encourage him to foster a ministry culture that equips and invites women to contribute their God-given gifts to the body of Christ? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would say to you, brother, who is listening, you're a church leader, and you're wondering how you can think uh, better and more biblically about cultivating that kind of uh, environment in your church. I think the first thing I want to say to you is don't be afraid. I think we have often been trained by what a friend of mine calls a lazy litmus test to see some things as indicators of people who've abandoned the gospel, of people who've bought into liberalism, social gospel, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you start thinking about and talking about the value of women, even if you're just saying, hey, look, look at the Bible. Here's what's in here. God emphasizes this. There's going to be friends that look at you strangely. And if you start to ask, what should we be having women do in our church? And where might we be excluding them without biblical warrants or whatever? You're going to have people who think that you are heading someplace dangerous. And I would just say to you, don't be afraid. The scripture Every single word of it is inspired by God and authoritative, and every word of it is written to benefit and to help us. And so looking at the Bible word for word and trying to interpret it in context will not harm you. Uh, it can only help you. The second thing is to listen to women. Ask some women in your congregation. Don't just ask your wife because every woman's different, and you can't assume that your wife uh, speaks for all women, even if she wants to. She doesn't. And ask some women who you trust and who trust you to give you their honest feedback about the questions they have or their experiences of what it's like to be a woman in your church and give them the safety of being honest. Tell them, you know, this isn't going to go outside this conversation. Don't argue with them. Don't push back. Ask clarifying questions and try to understand them. We don't have to always point out where we disagree. <laughs> Not everything has to end with us giving three points in a poem. Just listen and try to understand your sisters. And then go to the Word of God. We go to the Word of God first and foremost in all of this. But what I mean is uh, go to Scripture and evaluate what you're seeing and what you're hearing and what you're doing on the foundation of Scripture alone. It is our sole authority for life and ministry. You know, in our, in our confession of faith at our church, it states that we aren't allowed to bind the consciences of people, of, of Christians, with something the Bible doesn't teach. And so I want to go to the scripture and say, can I defend what we do and what we don't do by what God, our creator and redeemer, has said? Emphasize in your teaching and in your practice what the Bible emphasizes. But we're hearing from a lot of women who say, anytime this conversation comes up, the final point that's always driven home is what women can't do. Does the Bible speak to those things in the church and in the home? Yes. And I can count um, on one hand the number of passages where it speaks to those. That doesn't minimize their importance of those passages. Um, God only has to say something once for it to be true. But he speaks so much more about women, thousands of passages about women from Genesis to Revelation 
that many of us have never heard preached on with truths that we've never heard emphasized. And so say everything God says, but emphasize things with the emphasis God gives it. And I think that will steer us in the right direction. Elise, I want to have you close out with the same type of question. So I'm going to ask you, and then if you would please address the audience, there may be a woman listening to this episode who believes that her sinful choices, shameful past, make her unfit for kingdom work. Maybe she lives with secrets and often views herself as damaged goods. She isn't sure that God would even dare to value someone with a past like hers, and the voices that she's heard all her life seem to reinforce that very belief. What would you say to this woman to encourage her to believe that God isn't finished with her yet? Well, here's the good news. None of us are fit for kingdom work. I don't know anybody who's fit for kingdom work. I know a lot of really godly people, but if you're going to talk about who's actually fit for kingdom work, nobody beside the Lord Jesus is fit for kingdom work. And then I would encourage the women to look at the women God used. I've come to call it the holy reversal. It's like he finds the most unlikely women and then says, yeah, you, I want you, you're the one. And are there, are there women who we would say are sort of outwardly godly that God used? Yes, of course. But there are also all kinds of other women who made really bad choices in their life. And yet, you know, they're the ones that were very, very comfortable around the Lord Jesus and went with him everywhere. It just blows my mind. The very first person that Christ commissioned to preach the truth of the resurrection was Mary Magdalene. I mean, come on. You know, if you want to say, okay, it's going to be Mary of Bethany, you know, because, you know, there she is, she's at Jesus' feet, and, you know, she's all, looks all holy, and, you know, no, <laughs> it's Mary Magdalene. See, that needs to say something to us. None of that is just a coincidence. Oh, well, she is the, she's the one that happens to be here. No, actually, she was the one that he had chosen from before the foundation of the world to be the first herald of the gospel message to the women, to my dear sisters. Perhaps you've lived a life that now you're saying, I wish I hadn't done that. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Done things, said things, thought things, acted in ways. I'm, I'm right there with you. But here's the great news. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is the friend of sinners. And he loves to take marred vessels and display them as glorious trophies of his grace. Do not let your enemy say to you, you have no value. Just think about the people he used. You know, your reputation, what you think of yourself, that's not what matters. What matters is if you've asked him to forgive you of your sins and he has justified you, that means that he has given to you not only forgiveness of sins, but also complete righteousness. If you have made that transaction with him where you no longer trust in yourself, but you trust wholly in him, if you have done that, then you're as qualified as you need to be because you've got the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Run after him. He will not put you out. 
Amen. Oh, it's so Amen. good. I'm so excited for this conversation. Eric, do you have a, anything that you'd like to share in terms of if the audience wants to connect with you, where can they go to learn more about your ministry? Yeah, they, they can uh, they can find uh, me online at emshoemaker.com and social media. It's that emshoemaker is the tag for all, <clears throat> all of those as well. And I would just encourage uh, listeners to check out our podcast. Uh, we have a, a podcast called Worthy. And we're trying to have respectful conversations about the value of women uh, with a variety of guests who may not always agree, but we're trying to help uh, further conversation and understanding. Awesome. Yes, definitely check out that podcast. At least you want to plug a website or anything in particular? I would say listen to my family podcast, but I'm not going to do that to people. So (laughs) (laughs) we have a... We have a podcast called Front Porch with the Fitzes, which I continually apologize for. And if, if you're just looking for something that, you know, is, is may actually make you laugh and a conversation of a family sitting around a table making fun of each other and talking over each other and just being generally rude. Yeah, that's, that's our podcast. We'd love to have you as part of the Fitz Faithfuls. But they close out every episode with a devotion. so they Yeah, we do. So nope. we can- trick people into thinking we're actually Christians. <laughs> it's wonderful. I get a kick out of it. And so does my, my teenage daughter. Well, thanks again, both of you guys for joining us for today's Hope and Help Live on the subject of valuing women. I would strongly suggest you, if you're interested in learning more about this topic, to get the book. It is a blessing to the body of Christ. It's been a blessing in my own life. And I'm just so thankful that you guys took the time to write it. Hey, thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Thanks. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.